Well, good morning, Living Water. Good to see you out on this nice rainy day as the Lord blesses the earth with water for which we can have food, and we're thankful for that. Uh, a few preliminary comments before we get into today's text. So for some of you who've been with us uh, from the beginning of this series, uh, you may be wondering as you looked at the worship folder that was in your hand, are we, have we changed our view about the Bible because maybe we seem to be playing fast and loose uh, with the scriptures as you probably noticed that we are skipping eight verses. Uh, and so you may be wondering, but let me reassure you that is not the case. We're going to cover those eight verses next week, which naturally should lead you to the question of why would we be doing a text out of order when that's not how we normally handle things. Uh, last Sunday, after reviewing the upcoming sermons and texts, Pastor Mike stopped by my office and said, asked me if I would be willing to address this specific text because of the cultural weight that it has for us and significance. And I agreed. Uh, we would have switched the Sundays, but uh, scheduling did not permit that to happen, and thus we find ourselves where we are today. Uh, and as a believer that God is king and he's ruling the world, uh, I accept this as God's will for my life. Now, I am going to say some things in today's message that may cause you to want to respond from a very deep, emotional, theological, or philosophical aversion to what I'm saying. And if it, at any moment in the time that I'm speaking, you feel yourself starting to be overwhelmed by feelings of frustration or anger in that moment that you feel like you're about to lose control, let me offer you some counsel. If that's what's happening, don't stay in the room. Get up, walk out, give yourself some space and time. We can always talk about it later. That is how you understand and think about the text. You have my email address. Ms. Eleanor is always available for you to call and schedule a meeting. And we can sit down and talk about the evidence that underlies the work that I looked into this week and as other scholars have poured into. I don't have time to present all that evidence in the time that we have, but we can discuss it. We can agree to disagree on how we interpret this passage. But if you find yourself in that place, please, please stand up and leave. Let me go to the text today. So today we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. If you wouldn't mind standing, we'll just read this brief passage, and then we'll pray. Verse 9, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what, what, what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Eve was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That ends our reading of the reading of God's word. Let us take a moment to pray to ask his blessing on our times. Would you bow with me? 
Heavenly Father, we come to you again, and I want to praise you openly in the assembly of the congregation of the righteous, because you knew all the constraints and limitations that I faced as I prepared for this text this week. You know the weight of this text in our particular context and cultural moment, and I thank you for helping me to study so that I can share what I believe this text is teaching for us so that we can know how we ought to conduct ourselves in your church. Heavenly Father, you know that I have been tasked with speaking to my sisters and mothers in Christ. Please help me to speak with compassion without compromising what I believe your will is for their lives so that we may all praise you and praise your great name and that they may know that you hear their prayers. We ask these things in the name of your dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I would be complex. I would be cool. They'd say I'd play the field before I find someone to commit to. And that'd be okay for me to do, because every conquest I had made would make me more of a boss to you. I'd be a fearless leader. I'd be an alpha type. When everyone believes you, what's that like? I'm so sick of running as fast as I can, wondering if I'd get there quicker if I was a man. And I'm so sick of them coming at me again, because if I was a man, then I'd be the man. I'd be the man. I'd be the man. Taylor Swift captures in song the feeling of many women through generations about their roles in society and even the church. In the words of Professor Lionel Windsor, it tunes into the real frustration and anger that so many women feel towards the power that men so casually wield in our world. And brothers, if you don't get it, you need to try to. I encountered this frustration in an Amazon review from a book that was on the topic of complementarianism written from a female New Testament scholar. The reviewer by the name of Deborah wrote these words about the book. Another book on women who must be quiet, submissive, and have lots of children, fully obedient and submissive to all authorities and to the church and to their husbands at home. It's your God-ordained role in the Bible. You were created second to be a lesser creature and to help man have a good, quiet life. And your primary role for which you were created is to have children. And only by submission to this role of women can you get into heaven. Horrible book. If this is the way God feels about women, I don't know why any woman would want to follow him, much less worship him. I was so angry after reading the book, I tore it up. Can you feel her frustration? Now, although she misrepresents what the author says because I have read the book and owned the book, I believe she illustrates what Taylor Swift expressed. While the frustration, anger, and pushback, there are many reasons, a few I've already mentioned, but let me offer a couple of others. Pastor Alistair Begg reminded me of the insight that the Bible provides about men's and women's relationships in the world after sin entered it. He takes us back to Genesis 3 when God said to the woman in the second part of Genesis 3.16, 
Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. One, sin has caused an unhealthy power dynamics to interrupt the once harmonious relationship that characterized the relationship between the woman and the man. The woman would no longer be satisfied with her God-given position, but would desire to master her husband. But he would remain in the position of authority and power and at times abuse it. We see recent examples of this in our own society with the hashtag MeToo movement. Sometimes it shows up in the way that men make degrading comments about women and about them being different than men. As previously said, we do not endorse the abuse of power by anyone. Two, our culture also predisposes us to look at life in a particular way. Two authors in their book on complementarianism share this in one of the opening chapters of their book. They write, issues of gender swirl around in our culture with alarming ferocity. And they connect to deeply held feelings about equality and justice. Saying that men and women are different and that they might have different roles has been out of step with most of Western culture for a long time. To say that a woman is not allowed to do something because she is a woman is baffling, to say the least. And many in our culture would now consider the notion of gender roles to not only be weird but also morally wrong and potentially damaging to both women and men. Now, there's far more that needs to be said here and probably should be said here, but for the sake of time, I must move on. As Christians, we submit to a higher authority than culture, the government, or even our own desires. We seek to obey God. And as the Lord Jesus said to Satan when he was tempted by him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Last year, about this time, I shared with you an incident that had happened at a well-known church called Lakewood in Houston, Texas, pastored by Joel Osteen. Three ladies who were activists attended the service to protest, and they interrupted the service by yelling and removing their clothes as if they were at the beach. Now, for most of us in this room, we would deem such behavior inappropriate in this context. How do I know that? Because you don't behave that way. It seems that we agree then that we have gathered here to worship God and to hear his word. And we have collectively joined together because we believe we're serving a higher purpose. That there's something greater going on than just what we want in the world. And it is the gospel of God. We proclaim Christ Jesus who was crucified for our sins, died and raised by God on the third day as the son of God and the savior of the world. And how we choose to live or choose not to live as a community of believers can either help or hamper our witness and credibility in the society in which we live. And thus Paul wrote to Titus, not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything 
they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Our text addresses two ways that God-fearing women can adorn the gospel in the worship service through their, contra- through their conduct contrary to how the activists acted at Lakewood. We encounter the first in verses 9 and 10. Dress in a way that honors God. Dress in a way that honors God. Now, I've heard it said that women dress to impress other women. And only women know if that's true or not. From what I understand, that's part of women's culture that men are often oblivious to is the way that women look at, judge, and measure themselves against one another by evaluating how others look and dress. Now, perhaps this is what was happening among the women at the church in Ephesus. And Paul instructs Pastor Timothy to let the women know that God's standard for them is modesty. They were not to flaunt their wealth or social status by focusing on drawing attention to their appearance. We see that in the text through the cultural elements that he names, their braided hair accentuated by gold and pearls. Now, now Paul is not here commanding us that women cannot braid their hair if your hair is braided today. You're not violating or sinning in some way. Or if you have on pearls or gold, that's not what Paul is saying in our culture. But what he was getting at was the heart which was the desire to draw attention to oneself instead of Christ. Professor Robert Yarbrough provides a balance to this when he writes, nor should it be supposed here that Paul is calling for ugliness or slovenliness as the necessary norms for feminine appearance in the church. He is not counseling that Christian women must make sure they are always out of style. He is simply affirming that women are responsible for the integrity of God's people at worship as men are. God's not saying wear sackcloth and ashes. But he is saying don't dress in a way where you become the focus of the worship service. Now women here includes those who we might refer to as teenagers and older. But but there's another element that's handed to the text that you won't pick it up in the English that Paul is concerned about with the women's attire. And it shows up in the word that's translated into the English given the gloss of self-control in the ESV. Scholar Andreas Kostenberger brings this out. He translates the word instead in his own personal translation as good sense. Good sense is the sense of self-control, which was one of the four Greek primary virtues conveying self-mastery with regard to bodily passions. The dual principle is that Paul is prohibiting not only extravagant and ostentatious adornment, but also clothing that is seductive and enticing. To put it another way, don't let your body become a distraction to the body of Christ. This is the reason that we encourage discipleship relationships so that mature, godly women can gently and tactfully help other Christian women when they have gone over the boundary of modesty. How do we know that he's talking to Christian women? Verse 10, if you look in the text, notice what he says. But what is proper for women who profess godliness? 
He's not talking about all women, but women who say that you belong to God. This then implies that we will need to be patient and gracious towards unbelievers who might attend our assembly, assembly but within reason. As seminary prefet, president Daniel Aiken reminds us, he says about this, I basically expect non-believers to act like non-believers. And so I really don't have much in the way of a standard and expectation for them at all. So an unbeliever might come into worship and she might not be appropriately dressed because she doesn't know what scripture requires of us who are God-fearing people. And so it might be the task in some cases for godly women to surround her and help her if she's becoming a distraction to the body and leading us away from the worship of God. Instead, Paul instructs Christian women to put more focus on how they look to God than how they look to humans. Because God is more concerned about your inner beauty than your outer beauty. Notice what he, how he ends verse 10. He says, with good works. Now, we find many examples throughout the New Testament. Let me remind you of a few of women doing good works. Women financially supported the ministry of the Lord Jesus, Luke 8, 1 through 3. Mary learned at the feet of Jesus, Luke 10, 39. Women shared the gospel with unbelievers on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 13. Lydia showed hospitality to Paul and his companions, Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15. Phoebe was a servant in the church, Romans 16, verses 1 through 2. Tabitha was known for her charity and good deeds like making clothes for widows, Acts chapter 9, verse 36 through 39. Priscilla and her husband, Aquila, instructed Apollos in the way of the Lord, Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26. And we saw when we went through the book of Romans in the last chapter, chapter 16, that there were several women who were heavily involved and who had labored greatly in Christian ministry. But just in case you think this is just a Pauline idea, Peter says something similar to a different group of women when he writes, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Paul's point to Pastor Timothy is to tell the women in the church who would be considered his sisters and mothers in the church, dress in a way that honors God when you enter the house of worship. This brings us to the second way that we see appears in verses 11 through 15. Verses 11 through 15. Learn in a way that honors God. Learn in a way that honors God. Now we arrive to the point of tension in the text. What I'll try to do is just simply state up front what Paul is saying. Give a few observational concepts that have been offered. Not all of them. It's too many to name in our time together. And some of them for those who don't have backgrounds in the languages, might get lost in the concepts of some of the arguments. And then let me offer some rebuttals to potentially some objections that are presented at times. Not all of them. There's a lot. Pretty much every word is argued over in these verses. And there have been lots of theories that have been put out in regards to how to deal with them. So I cannot get into all of that today, but let me address 
a few things. So, Professor Jillian Gorvin, uh, another professor, she writes this about summing up what Paul is saying in the text. Listen to what she says. Women should be free to learn about God. They should do so with a quiet and submissive spirit. Women shouldn't teach and have or have authority over men where this is exercised in a manner that is contrary to God's design for men and women's relationships and roles as seen in the creation and the fall. When we gather together as believers, as we're doing right now, what Paul is saying is that women ought to be learning God's word alongside men. But the job of delivering what we would refer to as in our context, the sermon, the weekend message, that is the job of the elders of the church who should be mature, godly men who also provide oversight to the local church. How might we come to that conclusion? A few observations here that I'll share the scholars have mentioned in this regard. You remember, as we've mentioned in previous sermons and in previous series, that in the first century, churches often met in the context of homes. And so the question becomes, is this just simply referring to a home family context, or is it referring to the church that is gathered? One of the ways, and I won't get into all of them, but let me give you one. One of the ways we know that Paul is thinking of the church as a gathered body for worship and not just talking to a home setting is Paul's own words later in the text. Paul writes these words to Pastor Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that you, uh, so that if I, so, sorry, writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul says to Timothy, I, I want people to know how to conduct themselves right here in the context of gathered worship. That's how we know he has in mind not just a home setting, but a church setting. Paul has not just wives in view, but he has women in view. Sometimes it's argued that Paul is only speaking to wives and not to women in general. But we know by the application of modesty, which he applied in this text, he's thinking of all Christian women. He's not just simply saying, hey, only married women should dress modestly. And single women, just dress however you want. You could just come to worship anyway because you're single. So, you know, just do what you want. No, no, no. He's saying this is good for all women. And in light of that, he doesn't switch from talking about applying how women are to act from a select group to a generic group. He, he's saying this is the same for both groups. It's all women that's in view. So what about that being quiet idea? Is Paul saying here that women ought to never speak in a worship service? Should women enter the building and silence their voices? If you notice, quietness is mentioned both in verses 11 and 12. He, he wants to reiterate it. Here, Paul is getting at the idea he's referring to a demeanor when one is seeking to learn. If you're talking, then you're not listening. And if you're not listening, then you're not learning. 
if you have questions about that, Paul does later in the letter to Titus encourage some people to be silenced in Titus 1 when he talks about false teachers. And there he uses the different words and he tells Pastor Titus, you've got to silence, stop them from talking, false teachers. That's not what he uses here. And if Paul was really saying in this text that women could never speak in the worship service, then Paul would be contradicting his own teaching. If you turn over to the letter of the first Corinthians, you find that Paul there says that women can pray and prophesy in the worship service. And the last time I checked, praying and prophesying requires speaking. But there's one other thing in the text observation we want to notice. In verse 2, he applies the same word to all Christians. It's a demeanor that believers ought to have. Now, what does he say in the text that he wants women to submit to? Remember here again, this is one of the virtues that should characterize all Christians. We covered this in Romans chapter 13. Submissiveness is something that ought to characterize all believers. But here, in reference to women, it seems to be in light of what he's teaching, they are to submit to his teaching and to the teaching of the elders in the local assembly. Notice back in verse 7, as we read in the previous week, that he describes himself as a teacher of the nations. And he goes on later to say that the elders are to teach the body of Christ, which he references again in verse 5, 17. Paul is not simply saying that he's just anybody. He's claiming apostolic authority. And he says to the ladies in the church, you ought to submit to what I'm saying because what he has is from God. And so Paul calls the women in the gathered assembly to be learners, just like men who are not elders. In verse 12, we see Paul prohibiting two activities. And whether or not you agree with the interpretation of the text, as Tim Keller said in an interview with D.A. Carson, you must at least agree that Paul is prohibiting something here. Well, in the text, it is two activities that he has that are connected, and different people describe how this connection is happening, but it's, it's teaching and exercising authority over men. And as we keep reading, as we'll get ahead in the weeks to come, as we unpack the qualifications for elders, you'll notice that these are the very two qualifications of what it means for an elder to discharge their responsibility over the church, to teach and to exercise authority. And thereby, in doing this, he removes the option for women to teach in the gathered assembly or serve as church elders. Now, you might wonder why in the world would Paul say something like this? And Paul could easily have gone on and just left it there, but he at least gives you his reasoning whether or not you agree with it. He tells us in the next verses. Paul takes us back. Out of the context of Ephesus, he takes us back to the very beginning of human history in Genesis chapter 2, as the Lord did when he was asked about divorce. And he finds support for his argument and his reasoning in God's design in creation. God created Adam first. A scholar Robert Yarbrough puts it, 
Paul has in mind that the creation order is still in effect. And as firstborn, with the understanding of culture in mind, Adam had certain responsibilities to teach and to lead. Paul goes on in the next verse to move us out of the pristine world of Genesis 2 into the fallen world of Genesis 3 and says, Satan tempted Eve to violate the roles that God, that God had set up by taking the lead, and she did, and Adam followed, and thus cast the world into sin. And Paul says, in light of new creation, now that we have been given the Spirit, we have the ability to live as God intended so that the pattern which was violated in the beginning does not continue in the church. Does this then imply that women are somehow inferior to men as our reviewer once stated? Well, you already know the answer because we've told you that if you've attended our Discover class, the answer is no. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 state clearly that men and women together form the image of God. Galatians 3, 28 tells us that women are equal and co-heirs of this salvation that we have in Christ, just as men are. Women are not second-class salvation citizens. As the scripture lays out, the Spirit equally gifts women in the church just like he does men. But we do have different roles in the church just like in the home. Paul in this letter is going to characterize the church as just a larger family and bases his qualifications on church leadership on how one conducts and runs his home family. If a church leader is not a good manager of his home, he shouldn't be leading God's church. I then ask the question next is, should women teach it all then? And the answer is yes. Paul later in this letter simply says in Titus, or in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, that women ought to teach other women. And there are other texts that we can appeal to, but the, the point is made. Should women teach? Yes. Does this historical setting mean that we can simply relegate the teaching of Paul to the past? A lot of studies have been done to unearth the background here. And some have argued that what Paul says is time-bound in the past. It has no application for today. But if you notice in the text, Paul doesn't ground his reasoning in the culture of the day. He draws all the way back to God's order in creation and says there's something transcultural about the way God created the world that is true for all men and women for all times. It's not about the culture. It's about God's design. We see him apply the same principle in his letter to the Corinthian church in a different sitting. Same mindset, same reasoning. It's not cultural bound. It's God's design. Now, what about that last verse? When you read it, it's pretty strange. And there are a variety of interpretations. Is Paul saying that there's another way of salvation for women? If you get married and you have a few kids, you're saved. If you have more than one kid, you're doubly saved. Four kids, you're really saved. And if you're a woman and you don't have no kids, well, you should get married soon. 
Now, I believe Professors Kustenberger and Professor Smith, who both in their book, different books and commentaries, though um, present, I think the, the, they present the same view and they argue the same point. And I think out of the various reviews that I've read and, and, and run into and listened to this week, I think out of the textual evidence and arguments that they made compared to others, that they offer the best explanation, at least up until this point, in light of the evidence that we have available to us. Kustenberger puts it this way. He writes, Paul expresses here concern that women be kept safe from being deceived by Satan, and that he therefore encourages women to embrace and pursue their God-ordained calling, sitting around the family and the home. Does that mean that women are to be confined to the home? Not at all. The mandate for women to center their calling around the home does not limit it to the home. Smith, she goes on to express that same thought, but then goes on to say, this does not mean that all Christian women must have children. Rather, that women are to be content with the roles and responsibilities God has ordained for them. That might include children. It might not. It might include marriage. It might not. But however their lives unfold, women are to be content with the patterns of relationships between men and women that God has instituted for our own good. Let me close with a story because God does use women. Isabella Lilius Trotter was born on July 14, 1853, into a large and wealthy family. Her parents were Alexander and Isabella Trotter. She was raised on what at that time was London's West End. A famous artist by the name of John Ruskin had noticed her work and had told her that she could become the greatest artist of their generation if she would simply commit herself to completely to art. But Lilius chose to commit herself completely to something else, or rather to someone else. Lilius was artistic and poetic, but she was also a committed Christian. And so she ran a mission for street prostitutes in London and gave girls and women all the help that she could with the finances that she could raise. And later, moved by her commitment to ministry and the service of God, she started a mission in Africa on her own. She was a pioneer missionary, although she had never stopped painting and writing. She didn't create artwork for money necessarily or for fame, but simply in an effort to honor God with her gifts. She lived and ministered in Africa for the rest of her life, and she is remembered for her compassion and generosity, but also for her beautiful way of seeing the world and putting it into pictures and words for others to discover and enjoy. And at the time of her death in 1928, Lilius had established 13 missionary stations that had over 30 workers under the name of the Algiers Mission Band, who had united together for this vision to bring the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ to the people of this land, from the cloistered world of Arab womanhood to the Sufi mystics in the desert Southlands. During her 40 years in North Africa, she pioneered means, methods, and materials to reach the Arab people, which in retrospect are considered to be generations ahead of her time. And she once said this, take the very hardest thing in your life, the place of difficulty, outward and inward, and expect God to triumph gloriously in that spot.
just there, he can bring your soul into blossom. God wants to use you too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, a challenging word, Lord. And we realize, Lord, that not all of us come to this text and see it this way. And I realize that, Lord. But I do pray, Lord, as Paul said in another place, that we, we commit this to your hands. And we ask that as we continue to study your scriptures, that we might arrive all at the same place in the understanding of your word so that we might live it out in a way that honors you. Would you forgive us for men, Lord, when we have made it hard for women to live in a way that is complimentary to us because we have abused power that we have. We have degraded them or made them feel less than. And as I read through the various stories of how women were treated throughout the generations, it, 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 it's, it's easy to see why. Would you empower the women in our context, Lord, who out of a desire to know you and out of their conviction of the scriptures would, Lord, live these things out by the power of your spirit to dress in a way when they come into worship and even outside the context of the church in a way that reflects that they are in relationship with you and that they are submitted to your son, Jesus Christ. And help them, Lord, to learn in a way that honors you. May everything that they do in life be out of their devotion to you. We thank you for the many wonderful things that women have done because church ministry wouldn't be what it is today without women. And we thank you for the gift of them who have been our mothers and our sisters. I pray that you would bless them, Lord. And now, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity where we as men and women get to partner together and pool our resources to serve your purposes in the world. Would you bless every heart that has given, will give, or even desires to give? We ask these things in Jesus' holy name.